Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, we've got some big names on the podcast today to unpack everything from an update on the emerging marketing law of 95.5, if we can be so audacious as to call it that, a global snapshot on the battle in 2023 between brand investment and performance marketing, the urgent but still mostly ignored need for marketers to connect and change their marketing and brand speak for finance, new measurement and metrics, and even a case study on how NAB has been working through all of this over the past two years. I think this one will be loaded with actionable insights for B2B and B2C marketers. So on the mics today is New York-based B2B Institute's Global Head of Research and Big Marketing Mind, John Lobato, the Executive Marketing at NAB's Business and Private Bank, Ali Bloom, and CEO of Mindshare, Maria Grevis. So welcome to you all. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, this one. John Lobato, let's start with you first. Off the back of that intro... How about you set the scene really for the big themes globally in B2B marketing? We know there's some knock on there to B2C as well. I think everyone agrees we're at a critical juncture at the moment, aren't we, for 2023? And we're going to talk right out to 2030. That's a big stretch, but we'll get there. So, John, uh, welcome. And what are the three, probably three or four key themes uh, for B2B marketers at the moment that they must be engaging on and what you're seeing coming down the track in the next year or two? And welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. I think there are, are three general kind of trends we have talked about as being what we feel are durable trends or things we expect to last for the next decade. And then there's one that I think is much more pressing given the uh, deteriorating economic environment. But we'll start with the three durable trends first. So the first one we call the war on brand. We like very sensational headlines, as you can see. But the war on brand effectively, you know, we see it Got in our own attention. data, is um, everybody spends too much money on short-term or near-term lead generation or performance marketing. You know, it's all about the next quarter. There's very little thought about building a durable business over time. That's one thing that we just continue to see and I think is being exacerbated actually by the economic challenges. So that's one thing, Warren Brand. The second thing is, you know, more positive, though less practiced, which is this idea of the rise of blockbuster marketing. You know, if you step outside of the advertising world for a minute and even the marketing world for a minute and just think more broadly about who is the best in the world at creating content or creative, you know, it is companies like Disney. And Disney, you know, has got blockbusters, you know, uh, for every day of the week, it feels like, you know, they have made all of their big acquisitions have been things like Marvel and Pixar and, you know, Star Wars. So they've really doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on blockbuster marketing. And you actually do see that if you look in, in, in B2B marketing a little bit. I mean, the most famous example here would be Astro, the character for Salesforce is an example where, you know, in the same way Marvel has this you know, universe of characters, you actually have a universe of characters now that you see in Salesforce's advertising. So this idea of the rise of blockbuster marketing, we expect will continue to accelerate. There's not going to be fewer sequels. There's going to be more sequels. And I think it will bleed over into the world of B2B marketing and started to a little bit. Then the third idea is called the death of hyper-targeting. I think you just have lots of identity headwinds. We're not able to track and target people as precisely maybe as we were a couple of years ago. This means there's going to be less hyper-targeting, which I think will frankly be a positive change. We should rely more on first-party data where we have it 
Uh, it's just more dependable, more precise. And then where we don't, context actually, I think, is a really good way to kind of run media. So, you know, the three big ideas, you know, again, are war on brand. That's going in the wrong direction. Rise of blockbuster marketing early, but I think we'll go in the right direction. And then death of hyper-targeting. People still target way too much in B2B, but I'm hopeful that there will be some change there. And then the one I can tease, which we can get into collectively as a group, is just the idea that it has never been more important to partner with finance and to be well ahead of any budget cuts. We hear so much about the alignment of sales and marketing in B2B. We hear very little about the alignment of finance and marketing. So that's a conversation, I think, for all of us to have. Cool one. Well, let's race through these and unpack them a little bit before we get to the rest of the panel and have the conversation. War on brand, John. So we've for so long talked about and heard the theory, the science, the research that says invest you know, for the long term. We're in crunch time now, really, aren't we, as we come into these, these new economic conditions where the rubber hits the road. And what's your sense? Is it, are people uh, in the main capitulating back to the security and risk averseness of, of trying to drive short-term sales and putting brand aside? Or what's your global take on that? And is there some changes by market? Yeah, what I hear when I talk to marketers is they really don't understand how to measure the effect of brand advertising in the same way they understand how to measure the immediate effect of lead gen advertising. And in a moment of, you know, uncertainty and risk, people are risk off. They're not risk on. So there's less investment in brand advertising. There's more investment in lead generation. How many clicks did we get? You know, what's the cost per click? What's the cost per lead? What's some financial number I can show finance where they won't entirely, you know, cut my budget. So yeah, I mean, I think there are people are, it's survival. I get it, but it of course flies in the face of what we know broadly speaking from a lot of you know, marketing science that you ought to invest for the long term. You expect your company to be around for the long term. You ought to be investing for the long term. Peter Drucker, the famous management theorist, has a um, this kind of very funny thing. He says, like, you know, you have to think about the short term and the long term, but the adding up of the short terms does not necessarily make the long term. You know, and so like there's just like you can't just keep on adding up short terms and expect you have some sort of long term strategy or long term brand. And we do see that. Uh, I think I kind of butchered that quotation, but I think everybody will get the idea there. <laughs> yes, we got the idea. Yeah, it wasn't a bad butcher, John. Just your sense then is that in the main, the swing is heading back to performance and demand generation, at least in a B2B context. I and mean, you might have some thoughts on B2C, but um, in a B2B, the, the, it is swinging back that way. Uh, that's your sense? I would say swinging back, but honestly, it never swang, you know, the other way. So um, I would say it's almost just, it's like... Uh, if people were spending 20% of the, like, I think on LinkedIn, it's something like 17% of the money would be spent on what I would qualify as or categorize as brand advertising. And 83% is lead generation. And I would say those numbers are becoming even more skewed towards short-term lead generation. Well, it's way below what people say is the ideal, isn't it? Just for some of the listeners, when uh, for my listeners who are saying, well, what do you mean by brand investment, John? What's your definition of brand investment versus lead generation? The second is obvious, but what, how, how would you define brand advertising and brand investment? Lespin and Peterfield have this one slide that I really love. It's three circles and and the circles for the what they call sales activation are, it is a rational message, it is narrowly targeted, and it is sales metrics that you measure. And then on the brand advertising side, it's the opposite. It's not rational messaging, it's more emotional messaging. It's not narrow targeting or tight targeting, it's broad targeting. And it's not sales metrics, it's memory metrics. And I think those are the two ways you can think of these things as being diametrically opposed. 
and they work better in concert, but you know, we rarely see people pairing them or working in concert. It's generally people are one or the other. But um, the reality is that like even this idea of performance marketing you know, often means I'm going to run a short-term lead gen campaign and try to tie everything back to a dollar sign. But the reality is that performance marketing is some mix of these two strategies. It is not one or the other. Mm. And I did want to ask the big fuzzy question, can one ad do both? Can a piece of communication or a program do both brand and drive sales? I believe that there's no way that a lead gen ad can really build much brand for you. That's not what they're designed to do. And they're not memorable enough to do that because they're just running to a very narrow audience with a very time-bound offer. I do believe, though, that a great brand ad can both generate and will generate sales in the short term and in the long term. You know, Jenny Romaniak often says that one of the biggest mistakes that brand advertisers have made is saying that there's short-term lead generation and then there's long-term brand advertising. And in fact, you know, the greatest lead gen ad is a great brand ad because it will generate a sale immediately. There's lots of evidence from this idea of short-term advertising strength, SAS, SAS, showing that there will be a conversion or a sale within seven days. But you can also remember that ad for 30 years, 40 years. And, and so like an ad like that can work in the short term and for the long term, whereas I don't believe a lead gen ad does that. So brand has this sort of dual effect um, and, and lead gen ads are actually are, are, are just a single effect. Good take on war on brand. Two more sort of exec summaries on your exec summary. Rise of blockbuster marketing. I'm intrigued by this. When you say, and I do note your what Salesforce is trying to replicate with Disney with these characters, right? And it's also what comes out of even Ehrenberg Bass about needing to use characters to drive uh, mental availability and awareness and, and consideration, all those things. But when you talk about this blockbuster marketing coming out of Hollywood, if you like, and it's going to bleed into marketing, just unpack that a little bit more, John, what, what could that look like? What do you mean by, by that? Well, we, the example we always use is Salesforce. Disney is famous, I would say, for this idea of what they call, you know, total merchandising. And that's a little bit kind of what we are hinting at when we talk about the rise of blockbuster marketing. But, you know, if you think about what a great franchise is, is it's a big bet. It is not a small bet, right? They're doubling down on the same idea for many, many years, even decades. So it's big bets, not small bets. We hear so much about test and learn in digital. I think that is honestly not the right way to think about things. It's to test and learn to some degree, of course, but then it's the bet big. Everyone misses the bet big part. You know, it's test and learn and then scale and nobody focuses on the scale. So betting big, I think is very important. You see that with Disney. Also, Disney is not trying to create new content all the time. They're often running old content, you know, and that's a huge, obviously, difference in what we see in digital advertising or in broader marketing where everyone feels there's this idea that our, my content's going to wear out. I would say your content is actually honestly more likely to wear in, especially in a brand campaign than it is to wear out. So you can run the same ads. You know, Disney kind of calls this surprising familiarity or sequels and prequels. So you got your big bets, you got your surprising familiarity and then distinctiveness. You know, you can look at any Disney ad and based on the characters and look in the feel, you can really know that it generally is one of the Disney franchises. You know, Wes Anderson also has this very unique ability to create these worlds where you can immediately understand that they are distinctively Wes Anderson and nobody else or distinctively, you know, Disney or Pixar or Marvel and nobody else. Brands have to get that right to the idea of distinctiveness. Obviously, Ehrenberg Bass lead the way there and that kind of thinking. And then 
then it's just, you just take this big bet, you know, that everybody's familiar with that is distinctively your brand and you use it everywhere. You use it on billboards, you use it on webinars, you use it in email, you make a stuffed animal. And that's obviously the thing that Disney is the most famous for is taking all these ideas, packaging them up and monetizing them. And the, the IP doesn't change, but the formats through which they monetize do change. So I'd say that is the idea. You know, if you learn from Disney and Salesforce is doing it the best out of anybody I've seen in B2B, you end up having a lot of focus you end up having a lot of money, you know, made from it if done properly. Not always, but if done properly, you can do very well with it. Great. Good one. And the final one um, is this contentious argument about the death of hyper-targeting. Now, hyper-targeting versus personalization, is there a difference there in, in your view? And why does the death of hyper-targeting need to happen? Yeah, I mean, personalization to me, and my colleague Peter Weinberg also talks about this very articulately, is uh, probably like one of the worst ideas that we have come across in digital marketing. It's the extreme version of hyper-targeting. It's not even that you target a small group, it's that you target every person individually. I think segmentation should not be done at the individual level, but at the group level. You should find the biggest things that matter to the biggest group of buyers, and you should talk about those things. That's where there's real commercial opportunity. There's very little commercial opportunity in trying to identify what's different about everybody. It's mostly what's the same about all the buyers in your category and talking about that. Also, I just don't actually think that the data is good enough to be able to do personalization. So if you think about this idea of personalization, like, you know, if you've ever gone and looked at your cookies, I looked at my cookies once and it told me I was a woman with a Subaru, three kids, and I live, you know, in Florida. I'm a man. I don't have, I have one kid and um, I don't have a Subaru and I don't live in Florida. So everyone has this incredible confidence in the data that is purveyed around the industry. But if you actually go look at the data or even any of the research on the data, a gentleman in Australia named Nico Neumann at University of Melbourne did a great paper mm. on B2C where he found that the data is honestly no better than a coin flip, you know, on your on your yeah, gender. That's right. I remember that. Right. On gender, right? You can flip a coin and, and the coin will be as accurate as the data. Right. And then he did the he and a woman named Catherine Tucker, professor at MIT, they replicated it for B2B and they found it's much bigger problem in B2B. If you can be right 50% of the time in B2 in B2C, in B2B, you can be right about maybe like 10 to 14% of the time. So what that really effectively means if you flip it is 90 plus percent of your media, you think it's 100% good. And in fact, it's 90% bad, you know? And so that's an enormous source of waste, you know? Doesn't seem to be landing there in the market though. That, I mean, I, I've heard that for a while. There's still, the, the market still pours and, and does exactly the opposite to what you're talking about, John. But can I ask though, personalization in the context of, so I get that in terms of media and advertising and targeting. But if you've got, you know, customer experience platforms and you've got a company that's dealing with a customer base, personalization has a role there, does it not? I honestly don't know that it does. I mean, you know, if you think about some of the most sophisticated marketing firms in the world, and I would say Amazon is very clearly one of them. Like, have you ever looked at the, the, the actual um, recommendations that Amazon makes for you? I mean, the only thing they really make to me, at least, that is any good is like stuff that I've bought in the past. So is that extraordinary personalization? Like it's some form of personalization, but I think everybody is selling this vision of personalization that I just don't really believe we can deliver on. I don't think we have the data for it. I don't think, you know, I don't think we'd honestly even want the data for it. I mean, you would need in some ways a surveillance state in order to be able to actually have the data you need to personalize things the way people want. I think, you know, I think we do have, we do have personalization. It's in places like China and North Korea. <laughs> right. 
So the final one I want to get to before we get to the rest of our fine panellists is um, is this conversation that uh, we were talking about last week, all of us on in around finance, John. So the metrics measurement and the language that marketing uses in, in everything you just talked about, and certainly in that war on brand argument right at the top, is the ability to articulate and uh, prove or convince uh, finance and executive leadership that, that marketing is more than sort of uh, colouring and fuzzy metrics. What needs to happen there? And I think you think it's quite urgent. Yeah, I, I think it is quite urgent. I think it's the most urgent thing facing the entire industry right now. Because, you know, if we don't solve the problem of becoming more aligned with finance and better understanding the financial objectives and metrics of the firm, we get our budgets cut and then we can't do anything that we're talking about. And, you know, even in good times, I feel B2B marketing is underfunded. In bad times like today, it's slashed, you know, or cut entirely. I don't have honestly, the the answer to this. We're trying to work on it. I know that it's incredibly important. I think it honestly starts with stuff like it starts with meeting with your finance team once a week or, you know, once a month and understanding what the financial objectives are and then understanding from their perspective how you can put the work you do and the language that they need to understand to talk to their own teams about why marketing matters as an engine for growth, which is what it is, you know, and why it can't be cut and why it needs to be funded more aggressively, even in good times. So I don't have the answer there other than I know we need to, we need better marketing to the CFO. Like marketing is really not very good at marketing to the CFO. And if you think about it, of course, the CFO not only determines the budget for the group that you're in, it also determines your, he or she determines your personal compensation as well. So who more important than finance or the CFO to want to market to? But we don't do a very good job of that. And I think it's true at places like Can. we don't do a good job of explaining the financial effect of creativity. I think at other places, you don't ever see any presentations on marketing and finance at any conferences. It's just not really a conversation that I see happening even right now where we're all in big, you know, um, you know, there's just a lot of financial uncertainty and financial challenges. And I just don't see it as a primary conversation anybody's having. It probably should be the only conversation we're having in some ways. That's an overstatement, of course, but for fun, you know, maybe it's the only conversation we should be figuring out. Well, you are from New York, so we have to discount that. You're right. 95-5 rule, I think, is something that you do say gets us part of the way. And if you want to, uh, you know, in summary, the 95-5 rule is typically 95% of your market is not in play at any one time to buy. Only 5% is. I think you say the 95% is about marketing priming for that 5% when they are in market. That's a sales function. And all of that combined can scale up to a conversation with the finance team. Now, I've probably completely butchered, to use your word, um, the explanation there, John, but 95.5 doesn't go, gets us somewhere along this finance conversation or not? It does. 95.5 is important because it is a customer-centric view. It is just saying most people are not in market to buy your product or service today. They may be in the future, in six months, and six years, but the reality is they don't need it today. Not because you don't have a wonderful product, you're not a wonderful person, they just don't have the need for it today. You know, a small group of people, 5% have that need. The remainder, they do not have that need yet. That's the remaining 95%. You know, and, and honestly, it varies by category. 95.5 is a heuristic, you know, it's a, a broad kind of rule. In some categories, it can be 20% are in market, 25% are in market, and some it's 5% are in market. So it's not a, it's not, it's a heuristic. It's not like a rule in that way, right? It's broad. It's a little bit broader than that. But it always says the same thing, which is there's fewer people in market than are out market. The interesting thing is if you just take 2080 as a general way to think about this, any firm is valued on public markets. It's the sum of the future cash flows discounted back to the current. But what it actually is, if you think about it, and if you read about it is, 
something like 20% of a firm's values based on what I would call current cash flows, cash flows over the next year or two or three. And then the remaining 80% is cash flows from years three, four, five, six, seven, 10. If you're a finance, a tech company, maybe like 15, 20 years out into the future. So the job is always to make sure you have a durable stream of future cash flows. It's always the big job you're actually doing. And the only way to have that kind of future cash flow streams to reach people well in advance of purchase. And the only advertising that's very good at reaching people in advance of purchase and having them remember you and then buy you at some point in the future because they remember you is brand advertising. It is not short-term lead generation. It is incredible brand advertising that you remember and and then you come to mind and your brand comes to mind in the in the buying situation and gets bought, right? And so it's the idea that, you know, ultimately I do feel the 95.5 rule expresses, you know, customer behavior but also it's something that you could talk to your CFO about. Like my lead gen is about the next year or two. My brand advertising is about the years out in the future where we have to get those all important cash flows. Well, Ali Bloom, there is a truckload there to uh, to digest and I don't even know where to start, but why don't we start with NAB's journey? Because um, a lot of what John's been talking about, you've actually been uh, working through in the last couple of years. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about where NAB, at least in a B2B context with your with your business banking and private banking and so forth and the B2B context, tell us where NAB's been at because you have been, I think, um, taking much more of a focus and an investment on brand. How did that start? I think it's got the CEO you know, backing. So um, just talk us through where NAB's been and where it's at now and welcome, Ellie. Yeah, thank you. And thanks very much for having me. Um, yeah, as, as you said, we we had a, a new CEO start a couple of years ago uh, who really put out a, a new strategy and aligned the whole business uh, behind it. And uh, for those of you who you know listening to the podcast and, and don't know, NAV has traditionally been known as uh, as the business bank in, in Australia, but for whatever reason had somewhat forgotten that you know this was the heart and soul of the bank. And so the new strategy really refocused all of us onto um, the business bank being a key a pillar of the overarching um, bank. And just to be clear there, Ellie, I mean you NAB is the largest bank to business in the country. Have I got that right? Yes, you do have that right. Yes, right. So, hence why you've, it's it's territory that you have traditionally owned. Yeah, it's um yeah, it really is our, our heart and soul. And so, I think that yeah, it took just a, a bit of a shift in focus to to bring that back. But what came with that shift in strategic focus was also um some additional investment. And so, I think that it's one thing to say you know you, you want this to us to be um you know the to have the largest market share in uh in the business bank, but also how are we going to maintain that. And that what came with that was some was some reinvestment. And then also what changed was we we realigned um, ourselves. So we uh, previously and and you know many marketers would know you run centralized, you run decentralized. Um, right now we're in a decentralized um, modality where um, my team is totally aligned to the business. So I report through to the business, and I think that alignment. Um, has meant that we've been also at the coal face of of the challenges. And as John was saying, you know, we we actually are at the table with the finance partners in the business bank, um, not just the finance partners potentially for such a large organisation as as NAB with, with of marketing. And so I think that that's really changed uh, the way that marketing is viewed as a tool, but also um, understand the opportunities that that were available in the business bank. And again, arguing for that reinvestment in the brand of the business bank, which has been uh, absolutely a, a two-year uh, effort, and um, and yeah, we've just started to see the, the green shoots, um, the green shoots of that. 
So just if we step back a little bit, when you talked about, you know, your investments change, so to your point, there's, it, it, rhetorically you can say, well, we want business banking to, to grow and, and grow its market share. The investment quantum, are you talking there where there was new money, additional funds found to start building this plan out? Is that what, was, what happened? And what's that quantum? Did you get a 20% increase, 15, 20, 30 yeah, I think it would probably be about um, about the twenty percent, but I think it was sort of a, a, a realignment. But I think it was just that understanding that you can't strangle a brand. So um, if it is something that you want to be known for, then you need to keep telling people about it because otherwise um, uh, you will lose that that salience in the market. And as John said, that ninety five five, you've got to be in the mindset, in the consideration set to actually yeah be you know, be considered at a future point. So I think that it was that consistent um, investment that we've had over probably the 24-month uh, period that we're now starting to see, yeah, absolutely. We've, um, I mean, we've grown our consideration, I think, at 5% year on year the past year. I mean, you know, being a 20-plus you know, year marketer, we've never done that. Is that five percentage points, Ellie, or 5%? Five percentage points? That's five percentage points on a 12-month rolling average. Yep. Right. And They're hard to move, those numbers. They are really hard to move and it just shows potentially also, you know, how low the investment had been mm. and the opportunity that we've um, really taken to reposition ourselves in, in the hearts and minds of business owners um, in Australia. And also it was a very difficult time in Australia. I, I think that we need to also comment on that, that, um, you know, businesses were doing it hard and um, NAB as a just a general brand really got behind um, business during uh, COVID, showing support. We flipped it, took the big um, uh, leap and, and flipped our brand from NAB to JAB to encourage um, uh, vaccination. So I think that all of those signals uh, got us again back in front of business owners that this is a brand that really cares about the business community and understands that from a COVID perspective, it was going to be a business-led recovery. And so how can we, um, how can we show that and demonstrate that? And I think we've done that through our, through our marketing efforts. Brand investment, you touched on it, but in what way did your did NAB's business brand investment take shape? Was it um, a series? Of, what did it look like when you talk about brand investment? What does that mean? We realigned that balance between the bottom of the funnel and the top of the funnel. And so I think that um, it was, again, having that understanding that um, we weren't necessarily in the consideration set and if we were going to protect um the future cash flows that we that we really needed to flip that uh, investment a bit, and um, we're nowhere near where we should be. So um, I think we're at the, um, about this sort of sixty forty, still sixty. Unfortunately, well, well, it just is what it is. Not unfortunately, to more of our product or um, or demand generating activity. So sixty percent of your efforts are still in demand gen. Yes, still in demand gen, yep. and uh, and then forty percent would be in that uh, brand building, um, thought leadership, content uh, side of things, and and the weighting on that has shifted, Ali. Sorry, the weighting on that shifted from you know when two years ago, what where did it move from? Uh, I'd probably say um it was down to maybe about twenty percent. Right. Yep. And again, we were sort of marketing differently then, so we were looking at broad proposition work rather than um you know, very, very targeted um, business uh, execution. So, Okay. And so where would you like it to be, Ali? Like what's your ideal? If you're looking at some of your, your forecasts or some of your, your kind of plans, where do you feel as a hunch or as some data you've got that says we will ultimately get to X on that rate, on that weighting? I think it really depends on, again, going back to John's um, previous point around, you know, those relationships that we've been building with our finance team. I think that, really 
spending time with them, making sure that they, and as well as the Business Bank leadership team, sharing some of this more pointy-ended theory around how that investment drives uh, future um, future value and understanding that if we are going into a slower growth market, that potentially it is a better um, lean to actually put it into the top of the funnel at this point in time. But I don't think that it's going to, again, you know, it also depends on the cycles of, of products and um, and what's what we're taking to market. With that reinvestment in the business bank has come also in new developments in product. And, and so we're not going to take the position that we're going to develop a product and not tell anyone about it. So, so I think that we, we still need to have a balanced approach to it. But I'd probably say that um, the investment level we've got now, like, you know, maybe we'll shift it maybe by about 5%. I think that that would probably be something that we could get to, but I can't see it just with, you know, the interest of, um, you know, we cover micro right up to sort of the top end of town. We've got a lot of products to, to cover, a lot of segments to cover. And and I think that we hope to continue to build the, um, the brand and the brand association and awareness, um, but still, I guess, make sure that we're leveraging whatever the 5% or 10% of, of those customers that are in market, um, making sure that we're uh, getting that value and, and seeing those um, those value pools. You talk, Ali, about sort of linking brand investment to future value. How does that conversation go with the finance team and the exec team uh, when you're having those conversations? Do they, where is the but uh, yes, get it, Ali, but is there resistance that you found a way to work through? How does that go? How does that conversation go? Generally, we use the theory. So we go back to the um, Benane field work. We go back to, um, you know, the, the 95.5. We, we do use those models to try and share the thinking around. And, and I think that it's well understood. I think that when you use these um, these um, examples and uh and, you know, diagrams that, you know, show that, you know, going in and out of market is not as sustainable as actually continuing our presence in market and to grow, again, that brand association and, and salience. I think it's well understood. The but comes and, and you know, it comes in any business when you're looking at costs and, and challenges with respect to cost. Um, it has to come from somewhere and, and you know, marketing at uh, you know, sometimes does get looked at as, a, as an opportunity. And I think that what we need to do is both bring everyone with us. So it's an education piece, but I think also understand that there are still, you know, imperatives of business and business cycles and do the best we can with what we have. And I think that that's where we try and focus our efforts. And that's where we work with Maria and her team to ensure that we are understanding, again, the buying curve, where we're looking at diminishing returns, what could be the maximum investment that we could make in a particular area. And that's also something that we take back to our product areas and, and, and we say, I know that you want us to spend more in there, but actually it becomes less efficient. And so a more efficient way of spending that dollar would actually be taking that dollar and putting it into the top of the funnel because it will get you the future um, product outcomes down the track. And so we try and use that language, but also using the language of the business, for example, in return on marketing investment, um, what is the marketing contribution to their overarching sales targets, and constantly using um, reporting uh, to be able to, yeah, I guess, um, tell our own story of, of our success, which I think sometimes marketers are not so great at. No, that's right. Two more quick questions before we get to Maria, and that is you talked about the green shoots and five, a five percentage point increase in consideration. I think if I wrote that down correctly, 
those other green shoots that are going, okay, this is working. What else are you looking at to say you're getting some momentum, some wind in the sails, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we've also made some developments in our um, media mix modelling. And I think that what that's done for us is, again, help us to explain um, what we've done and also inform decisions that we're making. And so I think that what the media mix modelling has done, or MMM, it's given us the opportunity to show the value of what we've actually done. So I think previously using last click um, has said, okay, well, we're we're only delivering this amount back to um, your uh, commercial outcomes. But I think with the media mix modelling, what it's given us is a greater ability to demonstrate the value of the activity, but also um, more importantly, um, plan for uh, the coming year and what um, what are the right channels that we should be should be using. Right. Yeah. And last click, so last click still there somewhere hovering, is it for you? Yeah, I mean, we still have a little bit of last click around and we also have the constant debates around, you know, should we be using last click? Should we be using the media mix modelling? Ultimately, I, I do think the answer, and we just recently had a roundtable with my chair on this, um, I think we have to use both. I, I just don't think that, um, you know, there's a silver bullet here. I think that it's around using all the tools that are available to you, all the data that you can get. And again, in a bank, you know, we're super lucky in that we have a lot of data that we can use. But ultimately, you you use what you can. Um, all tools are as valuable as they can be. But, you know, I think also sometimes there's a bit of gut in there as well, to be frank. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there is a bit of that. Maria, um, you know, you've obviously, mind you, has been working with NAB for, I don't know, about a thousand years. It's a, it's a long-term relationship. Ten years. To, we just celebrated that ten. ten years. Okay. I might drop a couple of zeros off, but it's still a, it's a long one, right? It's, it's rare to have the, even that sort of tenure. I'm interested, Maria, how is NAB's journey on this and what, what Ali's been talking about? How has it impacted uh, what Mindshare does and what you're seeing and hearing from both Maria and John at the B2B Institute? What is that, how has that carried across into your broader client portfolio? So there's a couple of questions there, but welcome and, and initially the, the NAB conversation. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, and thanks, Ellie and John. There's some a lot of great thoughts surfaced in what you've shared so far. But um, I guess what I'd reflect on in all of that is some really solid marketing principles that are baked in marketing science is really what we're discussing as the pathway for effectiveness for B2B marketing. And NAB is absolutely the example of that in the way that we are focusing on how to drive both the brand strength and salience and ensure that pipeline for uh, conversion and that opportunity to capture the 5% when in market is maximised and that we're not losing Um, the opportunity to bring new business banking customers into our portfolio at that important last mile. And I think that's, you know, really important not to lose sight of that there is a lot of competition at the bottom of the funnel. And so the strength that we can build through brand when prospective customers are not in market is really important to ensure that we have a chance of winning at the bottom of the funnel as well. And it's just on that, Marie. I mean, you you are a long-time performance marketing sort of specialist in that you ran, uh, in a previous, recent previous life, you ran a performance marketing division of a big agency group. And so you're, you're there, you understand the bottom of the funnel uh, and have probably been, I don't know, historically, you might have been guilty of making us all go that way. We'll blame you for everything, shall we, Marie? But uh, <laughs> um, I joke. But um, it's interesting that with your recent sort of heritage in, in that area, what? how did you bring that, how does a performance skewed person, exec, bring the brand together as it sort of makes sense for you? 
Absolutely. And look, prior to running a performance marketing agency, I ran a marketing effectiveness practice, which was focused on marketing science and, you know, the fundamentals of how to grow brands. Um, And I think that's such an important uh, context to take into performance marketing so that you don't lose sight of the full funnel and the job to be done. And I really appreciated, John, when you called out that performance isn't just bottom of the funnel. I think everything we do in in marketing is performance orientated, irrespective of whether it's brand goals that we're seeking to, to improve or whether it's, you know, harder metrics around sales, KPIs. It's all performance. And I think that's very much what we reflect on when we say the funnel's collapsing and, you know, we've got to think about the entire impact of what we're putting out into market and how that's contributing to, you know, the cumulative uh, effects um, that we're seeking in our brand outcomes or our business outcomes. So I think with that background, you know, it's important that we're always thinking about that balance. And that's what I've loved in coming into, you know, Mindshare recently and, witnessing exactly how NAP has been on that journey and the role that our market mix models have played in providing that source of intelligence for both what we uh, know has contributed to outcome, but also what we predict will continue to contribute to outcomes as well. Do you think you're typical or that that perspective you have, Maria, uh, is typical of of, in performance marketing? I get the opposite sense that essentially um, if you're in performance marketing, the answer is performance marketing. What's the question? And so essentially there's a sort of a narrow swim lane that this is the be all and needle. You kind of get that. And on the flip side, you get brand people that actually don't have will, will downplay uh, performance uh, when to everyone's point on this, there's actually an interconnectedness here. There's a, there's a sort of a, a knock-on effect on the activities. But I would certainly, the sense that I get from some of the conversations you hear from performance and lower funnel proponents is that, you know, it's pretty much that. Now, is that reasonable or am I skew if on that? I think it's um, a matter of, of language and semantics, actually, that, you know, confounds, you know, that that clarity. Most of the performance marketers I've worked with are very cognizant of the role um, that brand plays. And, you know, a really great example of that is some of the best performance marketers really focus on content-driven strategies that are there to engage the 95% of future potential prospects um, and really invest a lot of their focus of strategy into that area, that's brand. That's doing the job that is, you know, being known outside of a transaction moment. It's about, you know, building that emotional connection and providing you, you know, a message and a position about my my capability for your business in a way that's going to have relevance to you down the track. Um, content is generally broadly targeted and it is about creating that muscle memory um, and association for that B2B brand. So, a performance marketer not, might not represent a content strategy or an SEO strategy um, or, or a performance partnership in that way. It's very much the role that it plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, good point. So what we're hearing today then, Maria, from NAB and from John at the B2B Institute around what they think should be happening and what NAB is doing, are you seeing that in your broader client portfolio or is it still kind of uh, a bit peppered? Yeah, we represent quite a few B2B brands, um, albeit they're on a much smaller scale than what NAV business banking represents. Um, I'd say they're more in the SME space of B2B marketing. 
Um, and the consistency that I've observed and what's really impacting on their results is really that focus, yes, on brand, but in the definition of brand being about content, in the definition of, you know, brand being um, regarded as to how their brand is experienced in a digital ecosystem and how prevalent that brand is within a digital economy. Um, that seems to be the bigger focus for those smaller um, marketers, I guess, given, you know, the context of their budget size and scale. When we think broadcast, it's not always um, an opportunity when you're talking to smaller business brands. Um, but definitely, it is still a focus. I think the, the constraint for smaller B2B brands is actually they, they live and die by their daily transactions. So, you know, that immediate cash flow for a smaller brand and their capacity for financing is, is so integral to, to their ability to succeed. And I think that's what puts pressure on the bottom of the funnel at the expense of more of the brand building exercises. And that's the thing that worries me going into the climate ahead. Like, how do you have that rational discussion with a CFO of a smaller organisation where they don't have, you know, the, the cash reserves to kind of support maybe a slowdown in immediate um, sales? Well, it's a great point. And, and John, I guess some of the stuff we're talking about is adopted earlier by enterprise level companies like now, big blue chips, right? And it's in, they have, tend to have more resource, more intelligence, as in more resource around business intelligence, uh, not smart people, to do this sort of stuff. So We've got them too. Got them too. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're covering it all. We'll come back to you too. So, but that's the, exactly the point is, is it a different conversation, a different message that has to be talked to at an SME, SMB level uh, business versus a blue chip enterprise, or does it all the same, but the, the challenges are a little different in, in applying it? Well, I think you need different, you're, you would market differently as a small company than you would as a big company. You know, it's not, it is not, unfortunately, one size fits all. It would be much easier for all of us if it was, but it's not. But I, you know, honestly, I see lots of small companies that do really smart things and I see lots of small companies that do really stupid things. And I likewise see lots of big companies that do smart things and lots of big companies that do stupid things. So, you know, it's, it's sometimes easier to do things at smaller companies than it is to do things at bigger companies because you just don't have as many people involved. You don't have as much politics. You don't have as much legacy. It's why startups are able to disrupt bigger firms that seem like they should be you know, effectively like undisruptible or irreplaceable, you know? Um, so there's definitely an advantage to being small, which is speed, you know, and I guess probably innovation and openness. But of course, there's huge advantages to being a big brand. I mean, if you actually read a lot of the how brands grow stuff, a lot of the marketing science, it basically says that big brands benefit in every way you can imagine. So it is kind of remarkable what any small it's company It's just in their favor full Fox, stop because yeah. of the scale, yeah. John, I just, to, just to go back to one of the points that Maria talked about in terms of using content, not necessarily advertising to build brand, that fits in your wheelhouse as well, right? That's part of the brand building efforts. I'm assuming you are aligned there or are we going to have um, some sparks flying? I think it's a port, you need a portfolio approach to doing these things. I think honestly, in some ways, like my, my inclination is to say that content marketing is overrated and it's... Um, you know, overhyped, but I think it's part of a portfolio. The honest answer is it's part of a portfolio. It has a role to play, but I think it's much more important at the bottom of the funnel where you are trying to close a deal because realistically, nobody's going to read something, you know, that is multiple pages long, you know, if unless they're in the category and very interested. So I think lots of companies tend to try to use it as, I would say it's more lead generation. You know, it, it is less brand 
advertising or brand building. Um, lots of people don't agree with that, but I would say it has a role and a place in a marketing portfolio and in an advertising portfolio. It's just that I think people generally use it in the wrong place, but of course it has a role to play. Mary, a quick counter there. <laughs> no, I totally see John's point. Um, and I think, you know, the way we define content, it's broader than, you know, white papers or, you know, the, the thought leadership pieces that uh, companies and enterprises um, put out. I think the way we think about content as well is in the types of partnerships we might form with other brands and, you know, more opportunities to bring the brand's creativity forward um, and to really create that emotional connection. Okay. We've also started looking at bite-sized content. So, again, um, short videos, you know, to business owners talking shop about a particular problem or challenge that they've um, that they've got or an insight, and then we put some media behind that as well. So um, I think, um, you know, to your point, John, like it's a portfolio of activity and it can be at all ends of the spectrum, but we do actually have quite a strong part of our um, activity which is um, centred around content and content generation. Mm, okay. I, I'm interested, while well, I've got you, Ali, John also uh, talked about personalization and hyper-targeting being um, overcooked uh, and overplayed in its role and in, in sort of predicting or hoping the end of it or a, a shift in it. What's your take on personalization, hyper-targeting, all of that? Are we, do we get sparks flying at this point? <laughs> Um, uh, look, I think in business, I'd probably concur. I think that, um, that, that idea around, um, trying to find the biggest things that you can take to the biggest, um, uh, customer base. So through your segmentation is smart. I think probably in more consumer, you'd find that there, I, I do think that there is an opportunity, maybe not for the hyper, um, personalization that, um, we're talking about the one to one type of, you know, you know, everything about me and therefore, but imagine a world where actually the cookies did get it right and you did know the type of car that I drove and you did know, um, you know, how many miles I'd driven and um, and that I did need some new tyres and you got that message to me at the right time, right place and through my channel of choice. I'd actually personally find that really useful. So I think that maybe it's not just is is hyper-targeting right? It's actually, do we have the right data sets? Are we using all of the data that we're generating? Um, have we yet stitched it together? Uh, and I think that there's an opportunity to do that. So I can't wait for that time when, you know, the fridge really does know that I need milk and not only, you know, has it put it on my shopping list, but actually it's ordered it for me and it's on the doorstep and I didn't need to think about it. So let's hope businesses can do that as well. Yes. Okay. And John, your take on that one, that's inevitable, do you think? Are you going to have to you accept that? Uh, I would just say this. I would say this about personalization. Gartner, very reputable brand, predicts that um, most marketers will abandon personalization by 2025. I think it's interesting because I would expect Gartner to say the opposite. You know, personalization is this enormous trend. Everybody's going to be doing it. And they're saying people are going to abandon it by 2025. So I didn't say that, but Gartner did. Okay. <laughs> nice. What do you call that? A uh, flick pass. John, Ali talked about uh, moving to market mix, media mix more, triple M, MMM, media mix modeling, a little bit of some, some are doing a bit of econometrics and that. I think, Maria, you might be doing a bit of that too. You are slowly shifting your view on this. Is that right? You haven't been a fan of um, media mix modeling and, and econometrics per se, have you? I should start by saying something that probably invalidates all of my following opinions, but at least it makes clear that they're <laughs> opinions. I'm, I'm not an expert on on market mix modeling. However, you know, it's really hard to measure the effect of advertising and marketing. You know, it's the, in some ways, it's the oldest challenge we have. John Wanamaker said, 
whatever, 150 years ago. I know 50% of my, my advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half, right? So it's not like this is a new idea. This is maybe the oldest idea in, in advertising. But I just feel broadly speaking, it's just so hard to be precise and deterministic about things. And that's what market mix modeling tries to do. So I'm skeptical of it. I'm skeptical of the precision. However, I will say this, I think it's a wonderful form of performance marketing. So actually, this is a different way to think about performance marketing, which is it's almost more like theater than it is about the actual measurement. You know, it is showing your finance team, your sales team, you know, we may not have the exact precise answer, but we're thinking about this seriously. We're hiring other people that are very commercial to think about this seriously with us. And though all models are wrong, some are useful. And we think that this is a useful way to guide our efforts. So I, I'm, I'm for this side of performance marketing. And I think it does add, you know, it's another tool you you use. I would just worry if it's saying all of the right things and your business is declining, then, you know, you always have to use common sense too, not just your market mix modeling. That's all. Maria, you're doing a bit of this, though, at Mindshare, aren't you, in terms of econometrics and media mix, true? or? Yeah, and we're actually, um, we provide the market mix models for National Australia Bank as well. So, I mean, I would have to respectfully disagree with John. <laughs> I think, you know, they're more than theatre. There's, you know, robust science, that's mathematics, actually, that sits behind market mix models. And as a step towards, we never position them as absolute, of course not but we position them as a way to have a level of visibility that we don't currently have to understand the different dynamics at play and how those dynamics contribute. And importantly, a model isn't just looking at, you know, single factors. We're not just looking at the impact of the different media investments across different channels. We're looking at things like consumer confidence. We're looking at things like interest rate rises, uh, you know, consumer spending. Like, There's a whole bunch of other factors relative to, what impacts on a brand's um, trajectory and performance that are also considered. So being able to kind of isolate some of those factors and then get a truer sense of what media is specifically accountable for in driving the outcomes that a brand seeks, I think is a really exciting territory to, to play across. Ellie, so the work that Maria is doing is the predictive work uh, or the attributional work that comes out of this MMM work and the projects, is it aligning to uh, business results? So you're starting to see whatever the, the models are saying, do this, or this is what's triggering business performance. It is aligning to what you're seeing in the business? Yes, yes, we are. And I think that, as I said before, we're also looking at it for that indicative predictive opportunity so again how much you know if we put this much into the market through these channels what comes out the other side so I think that um, there's a lot of science that goes into it um John do I look at it at a per unit you know metric well you know I go okay well within you know plus or minus we're going to get about that um and then we keep refining it but again when you're in the early days of model um you know the model needs data and so you need to actually keep feeding it and keep um feeding the past performance but yes, we are finding it. And I think also what it's done for us is um, actually show um, a greater impact of marketing, which goes back to that storytelling piece as well. And I think that's been invaluable of having the um, the MMM in place. Right. That's helped with your conversation with finance and, and broader operations and exec team. Okay. Um, the margin of error, you talk about a plus minus adjustment for what's coming in. So like, what's the plus minus variance? 
Yeah, look, um, again, we're, we're in early days with some of the models. Uh, so some of them are in a year one environment. We refresh the models on a, um, on a six monthly or even some of them on a 12 monthly basis. So that margin of error is probably around the, I'm going to say sort of two to five percent kind of metric. But again, it is plus or minus. Yeah, but but you can deal with plus or minus two to you know, three to five. It's not blowing out to thirty or forty, which would be a problem, right? That's I guess that's where you start to worry. Yeah, not at the moment. And again, um, you know, we have had an incredibly successful year this past year. It's been very um ripe environment for business banking, more generally speaking. Um, it'll be interesting to keep testing those models. Um, when the environment, you know, when you can take out the environmental factors, maybe, and see, you know, what what impact has that played? But again, those models need some time to bed in. And so I think that, um, yeah, we've, you know, that that plus or minus, who knows, again, whether it's that gut or whether it's context or, or so on, or whether it is the absolute science of what we're doing. But we believe in it. And, um, and I've had lots of conversations with the data scientists working on them where they've, you know, got their pen and, and put it onto the wall. And I've, I've, I've had to say, you're going to have to pause there because this is your world. And um, I'm going <laughs> yes, to go, right, okay, sure. I believe you. <laughs> yes, right. Your, your data, let's go with it. Hey, listen, we're right out of time. I just want to get a quick, maybe a one or two really fast key takeouts uh, for your peers uh, in industry for 2023. Um, one or two key takeouts, watchouts for the next 12 months in B2B. John, we might start with you. What's the big watchout for next year? Go talk to your finance team. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would say there's a ton of two things. Like, I think more B2B firms need better training for the entire firm. So everybody's trained on the same principle, speaking the same language, you know, and part of that is not just marketing language and marketing principles, it's finance language and finance principles. So I'd say more training. And then number two, I would say, go talk to your finance team and figure out what matters to them and how what you do, you know, makes sense financially for the firm. Got it. Maria, your one or two key takeouts for next year? Yeah, so the first one is probably just knowing the volatility that we're and the cautiousness we need to have ahead of next year. Don't make assumptions that your audience and buyers are fixed. Actually start to consider where new audiences for growth can come from. And I think that's going to be important for a lot of um, businesses, enterprise or SMB included. Um, And then the only other one I'd say is we're about to hear about the Australian privacy principles um, imminently, November 22. I'd say data minimization strategies is probably something that should be on every marketer's radar if it's not already. Yeah, great points. And gee, there's another week's conversation in that one. Ali, your sort of key takeouts or watchouts for next year for your peers and for marketing broadly? Yeah, I'd probably say um, keep your eyes on both the top and bottom of the funnel and middle. Uh, all parts of it. I think that uh, you just cannot focus on one at the exclusion of the other. And again, it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the economy over the next 12 months. And I guess time will tell to see that the brands that really understand their own funnel, because every uh, every brand has a different uh, patterns of, of behaviour and consumption, uh, will I think be the brands that really come up on top. I'd probably say the second one would be um, just to focus on developing that narrative to sell in the marketing science uh, with anyone who will listen. And, you know, I take this on board myself as well. I don't think, I I still think that I'm on that journey, but I think that, you know, we've had a, a bit of a discussion today around you know, be friends with your uh, with your finance partners, but it's really making sure that, you know, more than just your marketers actually understand the business of marketing and speak in the language, not just of marketing, but also the language of the business. Great points. 
Well, listen, John Lombardo, Ali Bloom, Maria Grevis, great conversation, loaded conversation, and um, you know, lots to watch for next year. So we'll leave you alone for that. Thanks for joining. Stay safe and, and look forward to a follow-up on your next five percentage point uh, lift in consideration, Ellie Bloom. That'll be good to watch. Stay safe. Thanks for joining, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.